0: You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network.
1: Hi, and welcome to the Women in Archaeology Podcast, a podcast about for and by women in the field. On this episode, we will be revisiting our roots. That's right, it's time for another round of the historical women in archaeology. Yay! 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 I'm Chelsea Slotin, and joining me for this episode are Emily Long, Deirdre Black, and Jenny McNiven, Ladies, thank you so much for uh, jumping on today. I really appreciate it. Happy to be yep. here. Absolutely. Absolutely. Excellent. So, as previously mentioned, this is our second episode of Amazing Historical Women in Archaeology. We'll be discussing a different group of women on tonight's episode than we did in our first episode. So, be sure to listen to episode 20 of our podcast if you want to learn about the. You know, 15, 20 or so women that we discussed Mm -hmm. um, the first time around. That podcast was uh, pretty organized. We had broken things down by date uh, of these historical women. This is not that podcast. This is the podcast (laughs) where we talk about all of the women that we didn't get to talk about last time because they didn't fit or unsurprisingly, there were way too many women in the last 150 years and a lot fewer women that we know about from 5,000 years ago because we know a few were named people from 5,000 years ago. (laughs) So who wants to kick us off? Like who is someone that they're just dying to share information about? Well, I have someone who rocks.
0: Go for it. I want to hear about her. All right. Anna Shepard. She's an archaeologist um, starting around the 1930s. And she uh, was a pioneer of petrographic analysis. So description and classification of rock. Ooh. Um, and mm-hmm. So I rocks. Um, but, um, yes. uh, <laughs> uh, she came to archaeology from, uh, you know, the rock sciences. And she did uh, optical crystallography and she was a specialist in Mesoamerican and Southwestern archaeology and ceramics. And so she was able to use um, her specialization in uh, rocks and how they form in looking at her pottery. She got our first of our really hardcore focus on sherd paste, paint, temper, not just this is a pretty pot that looks like this. And this is a pretty pot in this shape It's like, let's crack it open and see what all the beauty parts are inside. Um, oh, cool. And another part that makes her really cool is that she didn't do a lot of field work. And I know a lot of our early folks were like, field work, field work, field work. And everyone's like, aha, we go to the field and we do this thing. <laughs> but she actually did mostly lab work. Oh, lab nerd. <laughs> a lab nerd. <laughs> and even, you know, in the thirties really nice. and forties, she was, you know, one of the most widely published, you know, photographers and uh analysts and Started a standard of work called ceramics for the archaeologist. Oh, nice! Mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: that's crazy to so. think that's where I, that all came from. Because I have have definite memories Ooh, in grad school, trying oh, nice. to break open sherds and looking at temper mm. and paste analysis. It's like, huh, to think that's where oh. that all came from. Shame on me for right. not knowing
0: her. Well, it's not like we were taught <laughs> I that Ms. Shepherd know. yeah,
1: person well, started it.
0: You know. <laughs> we learned the big fellas' names, but we don't learn the ladies' names unless they discovered a fish of on a course. rock.
1: <laughs> uh, <laughs> and she is not actually the only amazing female archaeologist who did work with our rocks, because one of the women I looked at also worked with rocks. What? Oh. I know. Great, great minds, right, hey. Deidre? <laughs> Hells yeah. <laughs> uh, so I am probably going to get this middle name pronunciation wrong. Uh, But Mary Wynne Earls Porter, who was born in 1886 and died in 1980, so she was almost a centurion, which is crazy. Um, So she spent time in Rome in her teens. Her father was stationed there. And she was really, really interested in the decorative uh, stones that she was seeing Everywhere. And there was a huge part of the Roman trading network was um, trading decorative stones. So she was, you know, talking to some of the locals and realized that a lot of what they were saying didn't make a lot of sense. And the, the geologists at the time were describing the stones based on properties, not necessarily where they were from or what type of stone they were, but like, this is blue. Or this one oh. is, you know, has large bits of clear stone in it or quartz or, you know, whatever.
2: So, no, like, layered analysis in time? Like, that kind of thing they were not doing?
1: Exactly. Okay. So, she was upset about that <laughs> and decided to do something about it. So, she actually taught herself the basics of geology to try and identify the place of origin for a lot of these rocks, which included her um, compiling her own collection of <laughs> fragments from excavations. And I think she was like 15 at the time. So, oh, right. Um, fast forward six or so years, right. <laughs> uh, not even kidding. Fast forward six or so years when she was 21. Right. So in 1907, she published a book um, that was titled "What Rome Was Built With," a description of the stones employed in ancient times for its building and decoration. Right, 21 years old. That's awesome. Published a book that is that is still used. Um, she continued continued to like travel around. She did a brief stint at the Smithsonian, actually working with their. Um, Stone collection. She finally got a doctor of science from Somerville College in Oxford in 1932. Um, despite the fact that her father didn't believe women should be educated, but like doctorate. Um... And the, the collection that she started putting together when she was 15 was used to re- write the definitive text on the field, which was published in the 1970s by a dude. I have questions about why this other text that was published 70 years later than her earlier text is the definitive text. There's a whole other rant. That is really awesome. That's awesome. Um. So other women who rock and work with frogs. <laughs> I stole your pun. Sorry, Deidre. (laughs) Um, so yeah, Mary Porter. Um, Okay, well, if you guys want to
3: move on, I can talk about a very special woman that I did some research on. Uh, extremely well-known archaeologist Kathleen Kenyon. Ooh. Um, yes, yeah, yes. Considered one of the foremost uh, women archaeologists of the 20th century. Actually, just archaeologist period, uh, because she's the bomb. She's pretty awesome. Um, so she was born in 1906. She just passed away. A little while ago in 1978, but she had an extremely prolific career, extremely um, influential. Uh, Yeah, for sure. So, okay. So imagine, if you will, uh, a young Evie from The Mummy. Um, This is basically how Kathleen (laughs) Kenyon started out. (laughs) Yeah. uh, So... Is there any evidence that that character is based on you her? You know, there might be. Um, I wouldn't be surprised at all if, if, in the beginning of the first Mummy movie, they were like, oh, remember that famous archaeologist who lived in the British Museum because her dad ran it? <laughs> um, <laughs> let's just base Evie off of her, because that sounds like a pretty bomb way to get started as an archaeologist. <laughs> or a librarian, whichever you, pr- you prefer. Um, so, yeah, Kathleen Kenyon actually basically lived attached to the British Museum when she was young. Her father was the director Um, He was a biblical scholar, Sir Frederick Kenyon. And this is how she got into the field. Um, So she went to Oxford. Um, She was the first female president of the Oxford Archaeological Society. Wow, that's amazing. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Um, She Actually, she, she studied in school, and then she went directly out into the field under Gertrude Caton Thompson, who is another famous female archaeologist from Britain. Um, so she was in the field by 1929. Um, in the 30s, she starts working with Mortimer Aunt Wheeler, Wheeler. another very famous... Monk. Yes. And Tessa, right. So yeah, she's she's basically working with like some huge major players in the scene um, in British archaeology during that period. So the Wheelers and Gertrude Caton Thompson, she starts working on a lot of Romano-British sites actually in England. And so that's kind of where she begins academically. Um, and then she... Eventually moves on to work in the Levant uh, and the majority of her career is spent um, working in a lot of Neolithic Fertile Crescent sites um, especially the site of Jericho, um, extremely famous Bibli- biblical archeologici- ar- bl- 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 biblical archaeology site um, and so she becomes basically the foremost scholar of Neolithic Jericho um, so this wow. is some of the Yes, yes. Some of the most important stuff that she does for archaeology comes from her meticulous approach to excavation methodology, which, as you guys know, like in the early 20th century, not always so much a thing with a lot of a um, iffy. <laughs> but um, isn't she the one that spread the idea of stratigraphy? Yeah, basically, exactly. Her in depth stratigraphic interpretation is like her thing. That is what. What basically makes her one of the most respected archaeologists archeologi- um, because of her methodology. And so um, she's working in the Levant, she works on a lot of Roman settlements, but then she also starts working on Neolithic period stuff. And that's when she kind of just blows up. <laughs> so <laughs> um, she does a lot of work on establishing the timeline of ancient Jericho. Um, she uh, is does excavations in Jerusalem. She's working with the British School of Archaeology in Jerusalem. And um, eventually, actually, the British School of Archaeology there um, renames itself the Kenyon Institute after Kathleen Kenyon it's herself uh, because of the amazing amount of influence she had there and the amount of work she's done. Um, so, You know, she went on to have an illustrious career to teach. Um, She taught at University College London. She was the principal of St. Hugh's College, Oxford. She was granted the Order of the British Empire, which, yes, does make her Dame Kathleen Kenyon. So um, if anybody's the boss, I have to say it would be the Dame, the Dame Kathleen Kenyon. Uh, So, yeah, she uh, has always been a big name. As far as I remember, since I started studying archaeology and especially being interested in the women who paved the way in the field, uh, she's one of the big ones. So Kathleen Kenyon, she's awesome. That's
2: so cool. And to I guess round off our last five minutes, I should talk about one of my folks because she studied under Kenyon. Hey, <laughs> so she is a student. So just keep moving it along. A circle. <laughs> and that's um, Jean Sassoon, and um, she studied under Gordon Child, Mortimer Wheeler, and of course Kathleen Kenyon. So so cool, and she's um, about like she's in her either late eighties, early nineties, and she's still working. Like I was, I was reading up about her on the Trial Blazers website, which everybody should check out. It's such an amazing website and has it tons is. of articles on yep. amazing women and archaeology in general. And um, so I was reading up about her and the fact that she's still working just astounds me at that age. And it's like, yes, keep rolling. Um, so she she worked in um, as an ethnographer. She worked in archaeology. She worked in Great Britain to East Africa. Um, so her the breadth of the things that she studied is very, quite wide. She worked at Alduvai Gorge with the Leakeys. Um, She became an honorable ethnographer at the Kenyan National Museum. She did ethnographic work with Mary Leakey um, on the manufacture and use of stone um, hollows and bowls and how that type of material culture wasn't really being um, brought forth as much. And then on top of all of this amazing work she did and the work that she did for um, for Kenya, for just being an amazing ethnographer, she also became um, a consultant for the United Nations. <laughs> um, uh, so she was consulting um, on Kenya and the southern Sudan. And so just... I unfortunately couldn't tell you much more about her specific work that she did, but except that she was just a really unique individual that continued the work of Kathleen Kenyon. She continued that work, um, continued work under the leakies and just kept pushing the field forward, um, especially with ethnography. So, yeah, just a really amazing individual. That's awesome. I mean, she worked with like the rock stars. <laughs> Pretty much. It's like you can't get a stronger background than that unless it's like like every big archaeologist today. You know, it's like, Mm -hmm. I studied under Benford, Hodder and Trigger (laughs) and Fagan and (laughs) Renfrew as well. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes. Every single one of them. (laughs) Sure.
3: (laughs) (laughs) there's somebody out there who can say
2: that. Exactly. So... Just, I think we've already got a good start on some amazing women that are still working today and uh, some amazing women in history. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Yeah, This could be a good point to stop.
4: Are you interested in hosting your own show on the Archaeology Podcast Network? If you're passionate about a topic and can come up with at least 10 episodes right now, I'll wait. Then contact me at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. We'll go over your options and what we can do for you. That's chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Don't let your passions sit in a file cabinet or on a dusty bookshelf. Broadcast them to the world with a podcast today. Back to the show.
1: Hi, and welcome back to the Women in Archaeology podcast. In the last 20 minutes, we talked about some of our favorite female role models. We're going to continue that um, pattern in this second segment. Um, I actually would like to start us off with Princess Dashkova. Um, who's a little Ooh. bit older than some of the women we've talked about so far and is like a pseudo archaeologist, maybe. Maybe She's an a scientist, scientist though, which is really
3: cool. I'm already intrigued. Yeah, he sounds awesome. So let's right?
1: uh, So she was born uh, in 1744 Ooh. as a countess uh-huh. uh, from a Russian family. And then she married a prince and became Princess Dashkova. As you do. She. Right, casual. <laughs> uh, she apparently was friends with um, Catherine the First, but the two of them often butt heads politically. So, when she applied for um, a request to leave the country, it was granted because they were better friends when they were not. Each feet. Um, but so she was married when she was fifteen and became a princess. Her husband died, like five-ish years later, I believe from pneumonia, but she still had, like, all of his money and status, and as someone with money and status and time, she went and got a degree in mathematics. Um, then, like I mentioned previously, she and Catherine, like, um, first, you know, best friends, but also didn't necessarily love hanging out with each other. And so she traveled away. She met Ben Franklin when she was 37, who was so impressed with her, right? That he invited her to be the first woman member of the American Philosophical <laughs> Society. Um, what? Great. Right? Oh, shoot. Totally. Yeah. That is
2: impressive. That's oh, great, right? cray, cray. He found a woman perspective? <laughs> <this>? Concept. Ha <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: Also, I was literally just at their headquarters really? two days ago in Philly. No That's way.
1: Um, yeah, so she she was their first member, and she was the sole female member for I think it was close to eighty years. Oh my gosh, was she a yeah. member for eighty years? Uh, no, she was not. She did not live to be quite that old. Um, you'd only, you'd hope, right? One can. She lived to like one hundred and fifteen, right? One can dream. <laughs> Um, <laughs> so anyways, on her return to Russia, she was named the director of the Imperial Academy of Arts and Science. Um, nice. and the major thing that happened <laughs> in that organization while she was director of it was that she made Russian science professional. Um, right? What? Concept. How so? Um, just like better standards of documentation and um, nice. less mysticism and just like, you know, this is this – is, it's a profession. Um, and then, Less alchemy,
2: more science. Exactly. Exactly.
1: And also on her travels, she collected a lot of things. So, you know, from the late 1700s, early 1800s, kind of one of those, you know, cabinet of curiosities and natural history kind of thing. And she donated mm-hmm. that to the Moscow University in 1807. But one of the coolest things that was in her cabinet was actually a, a bone from a, at the time, unknown rhino species, right? Which was oh. the Lasmotherium Sibericum, which is a... That one. Right? It's the largest rhino that <laughs> ever lived. And one of the reasons that I really loved this woman and wanted to bring her up, this uh, rhino had a giant horn that was as much as two meters long, right? Which is, like, the size of an oh, adult geez. human person. Oh, my God. <laughs> <Is this laughs> right? so, so, it's like... A very large courier cabinet <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah. Unicorn rhino. Um... Did she it's the unicorn
3: rhino? Right. I know this rhino. Aww. yes. Um,
1: so she was help responsible for the discovery of uh, said unicorn rhino. In addition to professionalizing science and traveling and being respected by Ben Franklin and doing all these other really cool things, like unicorn rhino. <laughs> That's that's the archaeological <laughs> connection, right? It's, it's archaeology, It's fine. <laughs> close, it's close enough. Right? <laughs> it lived alongside people, we think. It did, yeah. It, it went extinct, I think it was forty or 50,000 years ago. Um, although some people think that it may have lived longer than that. Although, as of right now, I don't think we've got... Scientific proof of that, and that potentially that's where part of the unicorn myth comes from. Although narwhals are also a strong contender for where the unicorn myth comes from.
2: But mm-hmm. how do you go from, like, a, essentially a you know, like a giant fish to a horse with a horn?
0: How, how do you go from a sea cow to a mermaid? Mm, good yeah.
2: point. <laughs> Some very lonely sailors. I think...
0: L- Lonely sailors explain a lot of things.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, and, and a lot of the narwhal tusks that I think were... Originally made their way to European courts were not necessarily attached to skulls anymore. Um,
3: um,
1: so if you... they're so Out of context. Right. And the base of them may look like the base of... Like reindeer antlers or or deer antlers or something, but if there's only one of them, like, oh, like antlers go on top of animals' heads. Like clearly, this belongs on the top of an animal's head,
0: rather yeah. than coming out from its oh. mouth. Yes, I mean the first uh, lion pelts made it to to medieval England long before what a lion is supposed to look like made it there. And so the ta- taxidermy is interesting. Mm. Yeah. It's, it's the goofiest looking lion you've ever seen. <laughs> it's like you had a general idea of what a cat looks like. <laughs> lion just going, hey guys, I'm a lion. <laughs> but anyway, speaking of Russia and Siberia. Mm-hmm. Oh. Uh-oh. Are you done with our princess? I am done with our princess. So then, I would like to bring up Tatiana Proshkeriakov. Okay. Hey. Hey. Say that again. I don't know if I can. <laughs> oh, that was great, Tatyana Avenerovna Woo! I'm clapping. Ooh. I'm clapping. Ooh. Born in 1909, and as you mentioned before, the uh, professionalization of the sciences. Her parents were. Her father was a, a chemist to the Tsar, and her mother was a physician mm-hmm. in wow. Tomsk, in Tomsk, Siberia. But they traveled to the United States to live in Ohio in 1915 whilst what? doing research for the Tsar Nicholas II. And, it is and they just sort of stayed there. <laughs> I guess. Because there was good timing on their part.
2: Um, yeah. 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 <laughs> Ohio uh, versus the Ruf- Russian Revolution. It's pretty, and <laughs> pretty good One, choice.
0: <laughs> but she was a bit of a wunderkind. She was, you know, uh, reading at age three, t- speaking in multiple languages, uh, already receiving lessons in art and watercolor. And she really showed a knack for architecture and architectural drawings. And this was a time that you actually start getting architectural drawings that are are detailed out that show here's where all the little bricks are. Here's where all the corners are. This is what it's actually going to look like, or this is what that building actually looks like. And here's the bits and pieces.
3: Mm-hmm. And so
0: that really helped her when she went to Piedras Negres. She was originally brought in as much as for her architectural drawing as for her historical studies, but she gives us our first real scientific Uh, drawings of a lot of these Mayan pyramids and uh, structures and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And some of these things, we only know what they looked like before they were ravaged by various things because (laughs) she was drawing them in the forties.
1: Wow. Yeah. She started her
0: work in 1936. And it's also through her that we have a lot of the Mayan hieroglyphs preserved and preserved accurately. That's a big mm-hmm. asterisk right there. <laughs> and because uh, people had been sort of drawing them before, but leaving a little bit up to their own interpretation. But she she would uh, she would record them, you know, pretty faithfully. Mm-hmm. And she, she's really the – so she did uh, Piedras Negras, Copan, and all over the Yucatan. Wow. Like all over the place. That's I was like, wow. Well. Mm-hmm. I bet she had a bot fly at least once, but Ugh. her biographies <laughs> talk about that. Oh. <laughs> um, the only time she ever went back to Russia was talk was to talk to Mayan iconographer Yuri Knorozov. There uh-huh. you go. Who had theorized that some of these things had to deal with uh, birth and accession dates of Mayan rulers? Okay. And so she started getting it together, and it was through her work that later um, Linda Shell and Peter Matthews were able to bounce off of her work and in the seventies actually decipher the hieroglyphs so we can read them. Wow or they you can don't. read them I can't read them right <laughs> Some people can read them. so they can be yes. <laughs> but the amazing thing is is there you know here's this. Rustic American woman, you know, multilingual, working alone in the Yucatan in the thirties and forties. She's just like, you know, bugger off, guys. I'm going to sit here and draw my pictures. <laughs> <Bye>. <laughs> oh, my you want to do the big giant calendar drawing? That's great. I'm going to I'm going to go draw what someone ate for lunch. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, she really gets. Uh, she's the only reason we have a lot of the early Mayan. Sites um, preserved in detail because they're not detailed anymore
1: isn't that due right. to um,
2: looting uh, for the most part uh, or uh... Um, looting
0: uncovering but, like removing where the jungle had taken them over and not doing anything to preserve them mm-hmm, I see <laughs> um, some more looting um, uncovering them and then hurricanes going over. A few uh, yeah. Banana Republic Wars. Mm-hmm. <laughs> A few things. They've had some issues.
1: Yes. So I you know she's not. Um, I actually also uh, researched an artist because apparently, Ginger, you and I were just on the same wave- wavelength, like rocks, artists. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right? but was yours
0: buried at her first excavation site? Ooh. She was
1: not. Uh, mine mine has a little bit of a sad ending potentially. Oh no. Oh, no. <laughs> um so it's more, her name is uh, M Louise Baker. She was born in 1872 and she died in 1962. And she was an archaeological artist. She primarily worked with ink and watercolors. Um she actually started out as a A school teacher in a one room schoolhouse, but ended up because of her drawing skills as being to start with the part time artist at the University of Pennsylvania Museum. Where she worked on um, illustrating Mayan collections as well. And um, some other. I think Tatiana
3: Praskirikov worked there, too.
1: Yeah, yeah.
3: Yeah, I think so. I think that's uh, she did some of her illustrations through them.
1: Okay, some of so her, they gave some trips down future. there. Yeah, probably. Um, and then she was hired to do a gig at the Peabody Museum at Harvard. Casual. <laughs> um, wow. she she spent time in New Orleans, Mexico, Guatemala, England, Iraq. Um, her travels to go see the the collections at. These museums all over the place, as well as um, go do some kind of in situ drawings. So going to the excavations and drawing there were funded jointly by the University of Pennsylvania Pennsylvania Museum and the Carnegie Institute because she was a big deal. (laughs) Nice. One of her other skills that she was super lauded for was... Being a skilled pictorial conservationist, so she kind of knew the motifs from the areas that she worked in really well. And if you gave her a broken piece of something that was carved, she could often figure out what was supposed to be in the broken off bit. Oh, which that's is cool. really impressive. Um, and then the the kind of sad thing is that she ended up having to retire in. Um, 1936 because she was having trouble with her eyesight and this woman who is this incredible artist and made these amazing amazing illustrations was completely blind by 1949
2: oh Oh my god
1: right i said it was it was a sad story i'm sorry
2: yeah oh that's so bad but at least she has an amazing endearing art for us to look at and that she made such a contribution to the field
1: oh yeah mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. many of her drawings ended up in important early monographs and volumes about sites field reports and again sites that no longer exist or if they do mm-hmm. are in a much worse state of repair than they were a hundred years ago
3: mm-hmm. <laughs> wow that's so great I, I'm yeah. just in awe, especially of people who do archaeological illustrations. Like if, if you guys have never, I'm speaking to the, the larger you guys out there, have, <laughs> have never had the chance to kind of look into and explore some of these really awesome original illustrations of sites way back in the day when they were first being discovered. Like th- these things just blow my mind. Like I, I'm not an artist. So even though I love record like, map recording and all that stuff, um, I'm just I can't even imagine having the the talent to not only interpret those sites in these ruins and, and context, but to put them so faithfully down on paper. It's just, and, and I've looked at, you know, some of the drawings that these women have made. They are just absolutely insane. They're gorgeous. And it just blows my mind a little bit. Well,
1: mm-hmm. and so many of them are even better than photographs because little details that you can't necessarily tell the photograph like this is an important detail for you to really pick up on and focus on for the lens to uh, you know do what the lens is supposed to do to capture an image mm. you don't have that problem with someone who's doing an illustration
2: um, mm-hmm.
1: they they can f- can focus on the object and capture things that the camera might not the light doesn't matter as much for how crisp your details are going to be. Um, you know, I was lucky enough at a, a field school that I went to. There was a girl who actually did archaeological drawings, um, and they had us dig up. They buried plastic skeletons, and then we had to excavate the, the oh, graves nice. with the plastic <laughs> skeletons in them. And I
0: love I love doing the the, the drawings.
2: Sometimes. Oh, me too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I right. do think that's something a lot of people don't realize that is still a really important skill, but it's definitely slowly, um, I think, being lost unless you really make an effort to learn it. Um, a lot of folks don't realize that, like, with rock art, just like what you were saying about the the need for detail, you need to draw it as well as photograph it uh, or stone tools. There are certain, like um, – patterns that you can't really see, wear patterns to, um, flake scars that you can't see very well in a mm. photograph, but you can see in a drawing. And so, yeah, it's, it's a lost art and it, I think sometimes it looks so easy and then you try to do it and it's like, oh my God, this is really hard. Right. <laughs> or or like, wow, my drawing is absolutely terrible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
3: I remember just getting really excited when I figured out how to draw bricks really well. <laughs> Cause I did a lot of like 19th century sites and I'm like, man, I got to figure out how to draw these bricks better. Cause they are pathetic right now. Yeah. And I was very proud of my bricks eventually. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, and they can be so accurate. I mean, this the woman that I worked with at the field school. We also had a, um, a GPS device, so we, you know, like took GPS measurements at different points of on the bone, and then built like a really good 3D model of the skeleton, the plastic skeleton we dug up, and they overlaid her drawing that she'd done just by you know eyeing it, just by using her own you know artist eye. And they matched, like, perfectly. Wow. It was insane. Mm. And hers looked a thousand times better than the GPS <laughs> digital image that we had.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I cut my teeth on uh, burned rock mid drawings.
1: Mm, you fun. Wanna,
0: you want to talk about a maddening assortment of, of, of amorphous rocks. Oh. <laughs> oh, like how do i show this one tilts this way
4: hmm.
0: I... <laughs> just some extra dots here and there <laughs> oh, you want me to put an arrow in, on every single rock and the degrees it's tilted okay yes sir you know where i think we i, I think this skill comes
3: in super handy nowadays is in maritime archaeology Because we have a lot, you know, we can use pictures in terrestrial archaeology all day long. Yeah, I think drawings can be better. But there's not a lot of ways in many uh, underwater sites where you can capture it in the amount of detail that you would like. So I know doing, you know, drawings from underwater stuff for me has been challenging um, from the very, very little bit that I've done. But it's really cool to see how they come out comparatively to some of the just sort of really bad quality imagery you get under the water. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, that's I think yeah. that's an,
0: a really important skill for in the maritime world as well. Mm-hmm. Well, and I used it even on my thesis with uh, uh, stone tools because I had a picture and then digitally I drew had to draw over it because I was uh, highlighting the parts that were resharpened versus mm-hmm. were mm-hmm. the original chipping. Mm-hmm. To, because then I would like go this percentage on this one and this percentage on this one and here's some stats in bleh. right? And they were significant stats. It was very important. Uh,
1: <laughs> moral of the second twenty minutes of this podcast is: archaeological drawing is a skill that you should learn. And it's awesome. And we have some amazing women to thank for their early archaeological drawings. Um, and we're gonna have to a quick commercial break. And when we come back, we will discuss some more amazing women that we love.
4: Hey podcast listeners, do you find yourself wondering what the latest tablet or smartphone could do for your business? Wonder what GPS to pair with your device? Just trying to figure out how to go digital in the field without breaking the bank and or making a bad investment? Or did you find a technology company to work with, but just aren't sure the questions you need to ask during the initial conversation? Well, you're not alone. There are literally thousands of tech combinations out there, and it can be really tough finding the right one for your business and your workflow. My name is Chris Webster and I've been working in CRM since 2005 and I've been a tech enthusiast my entire life. I spend my time trying to figure out how to make archaeology more efficient both technologically and financially. No one is going to give you a big pile of money to do whatever you want with, so you have to make the most of what you have. The right gear can mean the difference between zero margins on that next project and an employee benefits package. That's where DigTech Concierge comes in. Let us be your technology guru. Whether you have just a few questions or want us on retainer 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, we're here to help. With years of experience, tens of thousands of acres of survey done completely digitally, and many, many people trained. DigTech is your tech BFF, just waiting to guide you through this process now and through the inevitable changes to come. Should you hold on to those tablets or upgrade? What about the new operating system? Will it crash your apps, or can you go ahead and do it? We know the answers and can guide you to a profitable year go to www.digtech-llc.com/tech-concierge to book a consultation or book us for the year. The yearly retainer includes unlimited calls and support and company training on software and gear. That's digtech-llc.com/tech-concierge. And Concierge is c-o-n-c-i-e-r-g-e. To get going and go digital today. Call us before you make any decisions. We've been there before. Hi, and
1: welcome back to the Women in Archaeology podcast. So far on today's episode, we've been discussing amazing historical women who are also archaeologists or archaeology adjacent. Um, last segment, we talked a bit about women who have done some amazing illustration work. And I know, Deidre, there was someone you really wanted to talk about who was local to you. So I believe Texas? That's correct.
0: Um You know, it's not a podcast without me talking about Texas, right? (laughs) Of course. (laughs) (laughs) So I want to talk about Miss Ellen Sue Turner. Ellen Sue, uh, I actually got to meet her quite a few times at the state archaeological conferences. Um, She was born in 1924 in Michigan, you know, lived through the Depression. Her dad, you know, would bring her to local historic sites, you know, uh, archaeological sites throughout the Southwest, um, but she, you know, grew up, got married, had some kids. And then in her 50s, she went, you know what? I really like that archaeology stuff. I'm going to go back to school. And nice. so that's nice. one of the nice. things that I really love. So in the 70s, she was went back to school as a non-traditional student. And she graduated in 79 at 55 years old with her degree. And that is so awesome. She, I love that kind uh, of stuff. And mm-hmm. She's amazing. It, she didn't have a, you know, coarse bone in her body. She was always so pleasant. Um, <laughs> she was. Uh, but I, I, I would keep finding her name in sites that I was revisiting, um, sites that are now underwater because she was around when they were doing all the reservoir projects. Um, and the thing that she was really, really good at was recording and illustrating stone tools. Uh, not just projectile points, but certainly projectile points and starting to gr- group them by time period and region and all that stuff. And uh, her book that came out of her um, I can't remember if it was her dissertation or her thesis, but it was the Stone Tools of Texas Indians is what it was called. and it still is called that. And you can still buy this book. It's in its third edition now. Wow. And it is still the definitive book. Um, there is a feller, Dr. Hester, who was one of my professors at school, has you know, help, ha- helped her you know, do, do some of the groupings. And as you know, new data came up, I uh, would make sure she got that in there. But uh, it was her lifelong goal to get it right. So she, would, she was continuing to work on it up until the last year of her life I know she was still talking to people the year before she died she was at the state archaeological conference signing books and telling what was coming up in the new edition and everything else wow and I was just like wow you know the woman 88 years old got into it after her kids was grown and was meticulously detailed and just had a zest for the field I mean the field of archaeology not necessarily field work but mm-hmm
3: That's great. You know, I get a lot of questions from people on, you know, am I too old to go into archaeology? You know, Mm -hmm. like, give me some advice here. And I I really love it, but I've been working a survival job for the last 20 years. And now I'm really unhappy. And can I go into this? And, like, this is just, you know, proof. It's testament. Like, you're not too old.
0: (laughs) It's never too late
2: if it's something you want to
0: do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, she was a woman that found professional work in her 60s in the 1980s. -hmm. So
2: that's really cool. Go,
0: girl! (laughs) Yeah, go, (laughs) Ellen Sue. Plus, everyone had to call her Doctor Doctor Ellen Sue. That's adorable.
1: (laughs) That's amazing.
0: (laughs) Um, so that's yeah, that's my local girl. I just that makes me happy.
1: Yay! So, if you all indulge me in moving into a (laughs) very much not local (laughs) girl, (laughs) all good. (laughs) <laughs> um, I would like to talk for a minute about um, Grace Mary Crowfoot, who all of her friends called her Molly. She was born in 1879, and she died in 1957. She was really well known for her work with textiles, but she also did some amazing work with um, botany. So she um married John Winter Crowfoot in 1909, and he worked in the Sudan. So she uh, moved to Cairo with him. And while there, she took a lot of photographs of the local flora and plants and then decided that, as mentioned last segment, photographs just weren't that great. They didn't really represent accurately enough or clearly enough the detail of the plants. So she decided that she was going to draw them. Um, And many of her field drawings are now in the Kew Gardens in London. Wow. Oh, neat. She was great at it. Um, But she also became really, really interested in textiles of North Africa, Middle East, um, and Europe. The, The two things that she's probably most known for are she wrote a paper on the um, tunic of Tutankhamen, mm. so she worked with his textiles. That's sweet um, as you do, right? Casual. Um, <laughs> no, she's just keep with, right? Whatever. <laughs> yes. um, and then she also worked with uh, textiles from Sutton Who in England. Oh wow! Nice. So, two major major sites. Um, I didn't realize she was there were textiles from Seton no. Neither did I, <laughs> but apparently she worked with them. <laughs> um, so she ended up, you know, back in the, the UK, training a whole new generation of archaeologists who were going to care about textiles because prior to that, textiles, they would find and literally remove from bone or metal or whatever, and just discard. They didn't keep it. They didn't analyze it. It wasn't considered to be oh, important. No. So she was a major driving force. And hey, maybe we should not get rid of the textiles. <laughs> um, right? Which is crazy. She also did what we would probably today call called like ethnographic archaeology, which is really mm-hmm. cool. When she was living in the Sudan, she wanted to befriend a lot of the the local women. So she took up spinning and weaving and actually became proficient at weaving herself. And then she compared the methods that the women were using and that they had taught her to the models of ancient Egyptian um, methods of spinning and weaving. Hmm. And she found that Unsurprisingly, the techniques and equipment had not changed that much in, you know, over a thousand years. Um, And then a really cool aspect of her that has absolutely nothing to do with archaeology. When she was working with these women and learning how to spin and weave, she talked to the women and learned about their lives. And through the conversations with them, she learned it. Um, female genital mutilation was a really common local tradition Mm -hmm. and it was the most severe form of it. So she was horrified and upset and she um, decided to set up the midwives training school, which was set up in the early 1920s. And it trained local midwives um, to help improve conditions of childbirth as well as address um, issues surrounding the practice of female genital mutilation so she wanted to empower the local women to take care of their own bodies and be in control of them so that's just a really cool thing that she did that has absolutely nothing to do with archaeology but it's still awesome mm-hmm. yeah oh, it's yeah. Amazing. <laughs> Yeah, it's Absolutely.
2: amazing. That's so cool, especially considering it's still such a major issue today that as early as, did you say the 1920s? Mm-hmm.
1: So she set up this group in, yeah, the 1920s. That's
2: that's wow. truly impressive that, that early on there were efforts to try to stop that practice or at least address the practice in general. Um, and for listeners who are not familiar with it, it's a pretty brutal practice that is still practice today in some areas and a lot of anthropological associations do try to address the situation but it's um a really severe form of uh, it's mutilation of one's parts i mean it's exactly how it sounds and so for an archaeologist to kind of turn anthropologist is pretty pretty awesome
1: yeah well and I don't think that she had um, l- like real archaeological training. Mm-hmm. Her grandfather collected Egyptian antiquities, mm-hmm. um, but you know whether archaeological, anthropological, just like a concerned, caring human being who wanted to make the world better. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, and and she herself was a professional midwife.
3: Oh! Oh! Okay! Wow! Uh, so she's a, a very as a well-rounded midwife. individual. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think it's it's very common. I think in the especially in the 20th century, for females working in anthropology and archaeology to sort of champion women in the study mm-hmm. of history and also in ethnography. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's kind of a part of society that when anthropology and archaeology was a bit more um, (laughs) male-led and biased, that it was definitely overlooked. And I think it was amazing that these women, these trailblazers sort of, or trailblazers (laughs) (laughs) either way, came in and started saying, okay, well, there's another half of society Mm -hmm. that we really aren't you know, focusing on no one is giving them the type of in-depth study that they deserve, and so it, you do see that a lot when you talk about female anthropologists and archaeologists. Mm. So um, it's 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 an awesome uh, it's an awesome thing to uh,
0: to reflect on. Exactly. Are you saying that representation matters?
1: Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> what oh,
0: kind of concept you have there?
2: What no. a novel concept. <laughs> going in a very different direction, this particular archaeologist, well, not even archaeologist, this yep. individual I looked at, um, really enjoyed archaeology and helped her husband a lot. But um, her work was far-reaching in many other ways, not necessarily in a uh, humanitarian way. Um, I was looking at Agatha Christie, and what's fun about her is that we... We all know she's a famous author. She wrote fantastic murder mysteries. I, I love her books. And I think the movie adaptations are a lot of fun. And one thing I didn't know too much about her was that um, she was incredibly interested in history. And you can see that reflected in a lot of her books. And she had a lot of interest in museums sure. and artifacts and ancient things. Um, and apparently she was a very well-traveled individual as well. But... Later in life, she ended up marrying an archaeologist named Max Malwin, and he, she ended up being involved in a lot of his work. And so she would help um, excavate, she would help clean artifacts, she would help analyze artifacts um, anywhere they went. And so she was incredibly active in the field, and she further popularized the field of archaeology through her books and through different publications and the things she would talk about. And there's a great quote um, from her when uh, that's on Trailblazers, and I will not attempt an English accent because that would be pitiful. But, um, <laughs> like many years ago, uh, <laughs> many years ago. Oh, that was really good. Just keep oh, yeah. doing that more. <laughs> so, um, when I was once saying sadly to Max, it was a pity I couldn't have taken up archaeology when I was a girl. So as to be more knowledgeable on the subject, he said, don't you realize that at this moment, you know more about prehistoric pottery than any woman in England? And so even though she didn't have formal training in archaeology, she learned so much about the field just by being part of these excavations by being interested and being active in it and putting herself forward as like, I'm going to analyze this stuff Mm -hmm. and I'm going to learn about it and I'm going to write about it, um, deal with it (laughs) type of thing. Mm -hmm. And so I just, I think that's amazing. Just not only was she this fantastic writer, she also had this archaeological side of her that um, a lot of people don't know about. Yeah. I think there's a lot of spouses
3: who who share kind of in the mission of what they're um, if, if they're married to an archaeologist of what they do. And a lot of them kind of, you know, do it in, in the darkness. But she's a really famous example of a spouse who was there. You know, uh, she was a part of the process and her, her husband's work and she was invested in it. But she just happened to be also a famous writer. So you hear about her, but you don't hear about a lot of other spouses that do kind of the mm-hmm. same thing.
1: And and there are other issues. I mean, there's a woman, um, Mary Garstrong, who was born in France sometime around 1880 um, to a not particularly well-off family. So um, it wasn't until she got married when she was mid-20s that she discovered archaeology because her husband was an archaeologist and she traveled and worked with him. She became... Well known for her pottery analysis and repair, she ran the camp and the lab at one of the dig sites at Jericho. Wow, wow! Everybody ended up at Jericho, <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, I mean, she she also worked in Turkey, but it's been noted that even though her husband mentioned in acknowledgments and introductions that yes, my wife was there and she, you know, helped with some of the administrative, you know, running of of labs and camps and things. Her role is downplayed, but we have a lot of photographs of her. And it's very, very clear from the photographs that she was heavily involved in mm. the work that was was happening, but it's really hard to say exactly what she was involved with because it, her role didn't necessarily get written down. Mm-hmm. So she's kind of an invisible spouse who isn't invisible because we have all these photographs. But there, mm-hmm. there are so many women in archeology span whose names we will will never know. There's an entire group of women called the Women of the Palestine Exploration Fund between the 1890s and the 1910s who were Palestinian women who w- worked at digs because it was thought that women's delicate touch, sarcasm, <laughs> would make them better at sieving dirt for small finds. Um, <laughs> That's
3: funny. <laughs> so,
1: you, I mean, you have pictures that have, you know, so many women in them, and the, the men slept at camp, but the women had to trek six miles to and from town oh, because gosh. they couldn't sleep out at the campsite because it was Ugh. not proper. So, after working after a 10, 11 hour day, you know, 12 miles round trip on top of that by foot, um, you know, and, and we have a couple names Huda and Fatme are names of two women, um. One of – Huda was apparently very feisty um, and <laughs> um, Fami was her friend and also there was like a relationship issue that was remarked upon by one of the the men. So we have their names. But most of these women did amazing work and we will probably never know their names. Well,
0: and yeah. it's, well, it's, it's, it's just a quirk that we have like Tessa Wheeler mm. um, who may have had – more to do with uh, the the strat- stratigraphy than uh, than Mr. Willer wanted to let on.
2: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
0: But she uh, she died of a pulmonary embolism in the thirties. Oh. So he got to keep publishing their mm-hmm. work. And then we have yeah. and then we have Mary Leakey.
2: Oh yeah, most of her mm-hmm. work goes towards her husband. Indeed.
0: Yeah, yeah, but you know. Where she worked, she was always known as the cigar smoking, whiskey drinking, whiskey drinking British archaeologist. Archeolog- <laughs>
2: My kind of lady, <laughs> but yeah. And Chelsea, like you've got a really good point. So, what hope is there for lesser known archaeologists when even the famous ones aren't really given their due? Even just a Briefly mentioned, there's a movie that came out not too long ago by um, Werner Herzog called Queen of the Desert. And it's and it was purported to be based on Gertrude Bell, who we talked about in the, the last um, episode of badass women in archaeology. And she was this amazing individual. And this movie is based on her um, di- her diaries. And works on her and she did amazing work in Jordan and Iraq and an incredibly influential human being and she was known as like the female Lawrence of Arabia and so on and so forth. But this movie primarily focused on her love life. So her the loves that were not to be. And only briefly at the end did it kind of mention, like, yeah, she did some really important stuff for the British government. But the majority of the movie was her just kind of wandering around the desert and never really went into her major contributions, which is very frustrating. It defined her by the men in her life, even though the movie was about her. So it's very frustrating. We have these amazing women that regardless, sometimes it's they'll always be overshadowed by other things.
1: Right. But that's
0: why we're
1: here.
2: More badass women to
3: come, we
1: promise. Truth to power. Um, We are actually approaching the end of the episode. So if anyone has any final thoughts that they desperately want to um, make known, now is your opportunity, at least until the next time that we record a badass woman in archaeology (laughs) podcast. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> um, if you have suggestions, let us know um, listeners like if you believe there are women we should be talking more about let us know and we'll we'll put get their name out there and we'll educate the public about these amazing women so let us know
1: yeah for sure absolutely
0: and if you want to be an amazing woman in archaeology like you can it doesn 't matter you know your age or your place you can f- there's, there's always a way that you can contribute.
1: Oh, yeah. For sure. For Thank sure. You. Well, I think that is an excellent note to end on. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode. Emily, Deidre, Jenny, as always, it is amazing to have the opportunity to talk to and learn from you. And um, you can always... Reach out to us at womeninarchaeology at gmail.com or on Twitter at WomenArchies. So, ladies, thanks so much, and I'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.
4: Bye. -bye.
1: Thanks for listening to the Women in Archaeology podcast. Links to the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes. You can contact us at womeninarchaeology at gmail.com or at WomenArchies on Twitter. Please like, share, and subscribe to the show. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Support the show in the APN at www.archpodnet.com slash members. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.
4: This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle, in Reno, Nevada, at the Reno Collective.
2: This has been a
0: presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network.